This is Joe Basso from Music Radar, the place for music makers, and I am speaking with Ted Nugent, Terrible Ted, The Nuge, The Motor City Madman. Am I leaving any nicknames out? Well, some that you can't say in the air, but our greetings to you, Joe. Happy Independence Day every day. There you go, man. By the way, who thinks up all these nicknames? Is it is it you? Is it somebody else? Well, the first uh, Motor City Madman reference was uh, back in the roaring 60s, <laughs> the 1960s when I was on the road, you know, 350 days a year. And uh, CB radios were the big deal on the highways of America uh, for communication amongst us travelers. I communicated for... You know, geographical considerations, uh, 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 expeditious traffic flow, and the location of the occasional smoky. <laughs> and uh, one guy asked me my handle one time, I think it was 1967 or so, and I just blurted back the Motor City Madman. And one of the guys in the band heard it, and he referenced it, you know, later on, and it just kind of picked up steam. But I think it was uh, both spontaneous and appropriate. Now, you recently played your 6,000th concert. Ouch! Boy, uh, that hurt. First off, who did all the counting, and B, was the 6,001 <laughs> concert a letdown? Well, first of all, we celebrated the 6,000th concert at what we thought was the epicenter of all things Uncle Ted, Detroit, Motor City, High Energy Rock and Roll. That was at the Pine Knob uh, Music Theater outside of Detroit, because that was uh, the convenient place to rendezvous with my uh, guitar teacher from 1958, Joe Podorsik, who I first performed live with uh, playing the song Honky Tonk. The actual 6,000th concert did just take place recently, so I'm on my 6,003, I think, right now. <laughs> but I got to tell you, we, we went back and reviewed. We found boxes. We, we lost our home in Michigan a few years ago to a, a terrible uh, uh, in, infestation of mold and dangerous conditions. So we uh, gathered up some of our belongings from uh, uh, our barn and our garage, and somebody stumbled upon all the old tour guides and all the old tour books and, and all the old tour lists. I forget who it was. I think it was probably a bunch of us, my daughter, my son, myself, and my assistant. Uh, they reviewed it with my management, and they went, my God, he'll do his sixth thousandth concert this year if all these if all these statistics are accurate and based on the feeling in my joints i think those statistics are accurate uh so that's where the number came from we we added up all the shows i started doing in my youth and uh the non-stop 300 plus a year from 67 through about 77 and uh even during the damn yankees years in the 1990s we were doing 200 concerts a year so it, it, you know it's funny but being clean and sober keeps you really healthy. Uh, it keeps you conscientious, which drives you to be healthy and take good care of yourself. I eat properly. I've never put any poisons in my system. No drugs, alcohol, tobacco, even though I do like a good glass of red wine on occasion, especially since I find out that it's actually good for you. But uh, the energy today is indescribable. With Mick Brown on drums and Greg Smith on the bass guitar, my songs have never been more intense. They've never been this tight. They've never been this energized or with such piss and vinegar and authority. I could not be more proud of my music in 2008 than I've ever been. And that is in light of the fact that I've always been surrounded by the best musicians the world has to offer. Just absolute world-class virtuosos every step of my amazing career. And I thank all those dedicated musicians. But today, we have reached a new pinnacle, a new high 
of rhythm and blues, uh, emotion and intensity and fun. And I attribute that to Greg Smith on bass and Mick Brown on drums. It's just every guitar player's dream, and I live it every night. Speaking of guitar playing, how do you approach the guitar? You mentioned that you studied guitar back in the day. I mean, do you still study? Do you play to records? Do you ever, do you ever work on pure technique? You know, I never do work on pure technique. Uh, I did in the very early years uh, just trying to uh, emulate my heroes, the Bo Diddley grind and the, the Chuck Berry uh, fluidity. And eventually I got to jam with B.B. King and Freddie King. And I actually played with Bo Diddley and I played with Chuck Berry. And I played with Stevie Ray Vaughan and Eddie Van Halen and Billy Gibbons. And I, uh, I, was, I was in a room jamming with Jimi Hendrix and Rick Derringer and Johnny Winter. So I really have been to the mountaintop of musical communication, uh, particularly from a guitar player's point of view. Considering all that guitar influence, I am equally influenced by uh, everything from Junior Walker and the All-Stars' amazing sax lines and sax melodies to the, uh, the musical collisions of uh, John Coltrane and Sun Ra. There is no music or sound or emotion or human experience that has not found its way into my music. So it was important that I physically approach the instrument so that I could maneuver my, my hands upon the neck and, and, and really hang on to that Gibson Birdland handcrafted archtop hollow body guitar. But the real influence in my music is one more of spirituality, emotion, sexuality, the, the human experience. I'm a very gregarious guy. I love sharing campfires, both figuratively and literally, with people from everyone, from wounded heroes in Afghanistan and in Kandahar and, and Iraq and Fallujah to training with the Navy SEALs and the Green Beret and the Army Rangers and the Special Ops to conducting federal raids against fugitive felons with uh, federal agents in uh, Texas and beyond and the burying of a loved one and the singing an emotional song to a terminally ill child to the sexual adventure of my youth to the um, sharing of a campfire with naked Africans on the Limpopo River and sharing the sacred flesh of a hunt that we killed together, uh, that life-sustaining protein with sharp sticks in a most aboriginal primal scream setting. All this goes into my guitar playing, which keeps it raw, it keeps it primal, it keeps it honest, it's just absolutely, inescapably honest, and most importantly, spontaneous. My music is not reviewed or considered or scrutinized. My music flows like a stream of spirituality. It's a, a, a sacred, uninhibited, irreverent dynamic between the inspiration of all the black influences of my early music to the masters that I uh, am privileged to collaborate with on a nightly basis like Mick and Greg. And it literally has life of its own and that's why every song I've ever written and every jam I've ever partaken in starts with my guitar making a grinding, rhythmical statement. I, I, I cannot pick up the guitar. I cannot pick up the guitar, Joe, without creating an infectious, grinding, danceable guitar line. And that's the essence of my musical life. 
I want to touch on two things that you just mentioned. First off, the, your, your guitar, but then I'm going to get to a political thing. You've mainly played Gibsons your entire career, Les Pauls, but especially the Birdland. Yeah, especially. Uh, ever think of playing a Telly or a Strat? I mean, Jimmy Page and Jimi Hendrix got some pretty killer sounds out of those. Yeah, he certainly does, and uh, a lot of my heroes got some uh, astonishing sounds on the Strat. I've only played the Strat, the Fender Stratocaster, on uh, one song ever in my recording career. And that was on a song called Working Hard, Playing Hard, mm-hmm. where I got almost like that that uh, Dick Dale and the Deltones, the Ventures Pipeline kind of sound on the uh, a low E string, where I get the kind of grind going, and then I played the... Uh, I have a beautiful 1953 Strat um, that was given to me by Al Nally uh, Music in Ann Arbor many years ago when we would tour together with his band, the uh, incredible Brownsville Station. And just the the timber of that Strat is what needed to be on that particular song. But I do play a lot of Paul Reed Smith guitars because they are absolute pieces of musical art. But that Gibson Birdland is inspired by Jimmy McCarty of Mitch and the Detroit Wheels, uh, way back in the late 1950s, um, continues to uh, not just inspire me, but to milk and mine unlimited musical adventure from that very unique hollow-body jazz guitar. And I, I, I do believe that God, God invented the Gibson Birdland for me. By the way, what amp do you put that through? For the last uh, 20 years, I've discovered that um, the threshold of that biting and fat, greasy barbecue tone that I love, that's personified on Stranglehold and on the newest album, Love Grenade, and uh, the song Girl Scout Cookies, that the Birdland and my, my old Les Pauls and the PRS, they really have the biggest, richest, nastiest sound from the PV uh, amplifiers, especially the 5150 and the new 6505s. A uh, combination of those and their classics gives me a very biting top, mid, and also that just roaring animal bottom end. So I really love my PV amps, too. Now, if you love the Birdland so much, as you obviously do, I saw a video of you recently where you uh, sacrificed it as a buffalo with a flaming arrow. Why would, why would you do that? <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, in the great tradition of my good friend Chris Angel, the illusionist, <laughs> I promise you, Joe, I would never sacrifice a Birdland for anything. Um, that is a, um, I, I suppose I, I could keep it all secret, but that shooter guitar is absolutely actually a replica of a custom all-white Gibson Birdland made by their custom shop that I performed Great White Buffalo and a few other songs on. For the a mountaintop uh, climax of the story of the Great White Buffalo and how his spirit keeps people autonomous and, and keeps people accountable. The ultimate use of the spiritual buffalo is to sustain oneself with his sacred flesh. And so in the great aboriginal celebration of my hunting lifestyle, um, I've set that guitar up on a stand and I draw back my bow and put a flaming arrow through it. And you got to admit, that is exciting. What if you miss? Uh, well, let's let's keep let's keep praying that I don't. <laughs> <laughs> now, actually, I did miss one time with the damn Yankees. Um, I use a little trigger release on the bowstring. It's a mechanical release that's been around forever, 
and it uh, gives you a consistent release, which is critical for the final departure of the arrow from the bow. And uh, one night, that trigger release, shall we say, had a premature oh. unleashing of the arrow. And that arrow, I believe, is still in the Meriwether Post Pavilion ceiling. <laughs> now, Ted, you, you speak very reverentially about the, the black musicians who have influenced you. Um, one must, yeah. Yet, you are, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, what I would call a very hardcore right-wing Republican guy. Well, old guard Republican, not the current wishy-washy Republicans. You know. Okay, but but the the new guard has not exactly been exactly preferential towards African Americans. How do you rationalize this? Oh, I think uh, you've just made a, a terrible miscalculation. I believe that the uh, the new slave owners of the modern world are liberal Democrats, who literally force this welfare slavery and hold people down and then if you really examine the demographics of those that are held down by the lie of welfare um, that has been created by liberal democrats and liberal republicans um, those are the real racists in america today uh, i was watching a show just recently of i believe if i correct me if i'm mistaken but i think it was actually the black republican caucus i know it was uh a huge uh, 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 assemblage of uh, black senators and congressmen and politicians who uh, were represented by, a, uh, and again, I hope I get this name properly, and I hope the designation is accurate, uh, Reverend Lee Peterson, who, uh, though I had completed my new book, Ted White and Blue, The Nugent Manifesto, including a chapter that I wrote called Black Like Me, because I live the best that I can in the shoes of my black musical heroes and my black hunting heroes. And regardless of one's color, color or ethnicity, um, one would have to admit to the statistics that Detroit is the manifestation of an intentional choice of cultural deprivation by a black community where the mayor elected is a gangster, a known gangster, even prior to his election, and the result and the horror of that denial, putting such a horrible leader in the position only because of his color, uh, in defiance of Martin Luther King's dream, Detroit has the embarrassing soullessness of only graduating one out of four Detroit children. That's racism. My universally embraced dream, universal by people of conscience, people of goodwill and decency, that is best represented by those speakers at this recent Republican Black Caucus, is literally word for word the chapter in my Ted White and Blue book, Black Like Me. And that is that welfare is slavery, and that to encourage the increased bloating of Fedzilla as the answer is not about independence, is not about equal justice under the law, which is not about equality. It's about identifying a segment of the population and literally telling them that they're not good enough to make it on their own. So I would like to think that in the final honest analysis, that what Ted Nugent represents and everybody that I know represents is that we are absolutely colorblind. We believe that the opportunities that exist for my son and your son and my neighbors exist for every American today, and it's proven 
by everybody from Tiger Woods and, and Oprah Winfrey and Bill Cosby and, and Colin Powell and, and Condoleezza Rice, and, and you could go on and on and on and on. What, what, that, a, what about Barack Obama? And Barack Obama is another perfect example. There is excellence in the heart and soul of everybody in America, and it's need, it needs to be encouraged and cultivated and not compromised via social programs that literally send a message that you're too stupid to make it on your own, so we've got to lower the bar so that you people who are squaring for the American dream might want to get up early and work really hard like all the people we just mentioned. Let's go back to music here now. And believe me, don't underestimate, Joe, No, that, that politics is the music. Music is the politics, if we are honest and uh, really sincere in a description of politics. Politics, in its final analysis, and the most pragmatic of considerations, well, you do have a is song. indeed people demanding accurate representation in the policymaking world. And that is called activism, and that's called an experiment self-government, where every man, woman, and child in the world, certainly, but currently only in America, have a responsibility to participate as official selves in this in this experiment self-government so the politics does get into music even in silly songs like wango tango where you need to escape the responsibilities and the stress of participating in politics so that one can have a good time that is working hard playing hard so we work hard at, at steering intelligent uh, logical policy, and then on the weekends, we hopefully we can rock and roll with Uncle Ted singing Wango Tango. Speaking, speaking of silly songs, does it feel strange to sing Wang Dang Sweet Poontang at 60 years of age? No, quite honestly, talking to you on the phone instead of singing Wang Dang feels weird. No, <laughs> singing Wang Dang Sweet Poontang at 60 years of age is the essence of life, my friend. <laughs> Especially the way Greg and Mick pound that song into the James Brown and his famous flames intensity. No, that song is, is more important now than it's ever been. Uh, we, we, we lovingly refer to that as the barbecue on the hoof song. And uh, no, that is one of my great, in fact, I gotta tell you, Wang Dang Sweet Poon Tang is my favorite 12 minutes every day. It goes places where no other band even knows you can go. We played a, a uh, festival in the Netherlands for about 50,000 people and uh, Dusty Hill from uh, and Billy Gibbons uh, from ZZ Top were on the side of the stage watching and they came back and, and they hugged me more than I would like to be hugged by a man <laughs> but they expressed to me that they went damn it dad we've got to get back to the Fandango days that was incredible I forgot all about that intensity and they, they were just laughing like kids getting their first piece of ass or, <laughs> or whatever you want to insert there yeah, but they they realized that, yes, at 60, when you're clean and sober, and you really, really diligently pursue a quality of life and health, that at 60, I could kick the 25-year-old Ted Nugent's ass. It's more intense, more energized, more lively, and dare I say I'm dancing better than I was 25, 30 years ago. Well, you know, they're going to make an album now with Rick Rubin, is that somebody that you would consider making a record with one day? Oh, I would be honored. I would. That would be a dream of mine to have someone who reveres the music and the integrity 
of an individual musical statement and identity like Rick Rubin does. And I can't wait to hear a ZZ Top record produced by Rick Rubin because he will make them as ZZ Top as ZZ Top can be. And that's what I want. What advice do you have for songwriters and musicians who are just starting out today? Because obviously things are much different and maybe much harder than when you were starting out. Well, I would not necessarily be a an effective source of advice for uh, songwriters and musicians who want to make a lot of money right now. I don't think. I hope I'm wrong. But the the current state of music is much too soulless in its formula-driven condition than I could ever partake in. I have found, and I see plenty of evidence uh, from guys like Toby Keith, and, and, and unfortunately, almost limited to the uh, country and western world, where troubadours and real, and real songwriting, you know, songsmiths are expressing uh, sincerity and emotion and, and outrage. I have always channeled songs. I don't sit down with a pencil and paper and write songs. If you listen to my recent I Am The NRA song, mm-hmm. I never wrote. A, I never sat down and wrote a thing. I picked up a guitar and it happened. I picked up a guitar in 1974 and Stranglehold happened. I picked up the guitar like I do every day and Love Grenade, it just comes out. The song Fred Bear, which has been voted number one in Michigan almost every year since 1990, uh, which basically the music industry is unaware of or in denial of, in Wisconsin and Michigan, you call any rock station, you ask them what's the number one requested song over the years, and they'll tell you the song Fred Bear. Because I went into a studio in Canton, Michigan, upon the death of this great man named Fred Bear, who was a hero and a friend of mine. And this love and affection tribute came out of my fingers and my soul and my mouth never wrote a lick never wrote a lyric i went to the mic and i got gunner ross on drums again a perfect example of my world-class virtuosos at my side and and michael lutz on bass guitar and the song fred bear happened and you have not witnessed the ultimate musical connection between artist and, and audience until you have seen me perform Fred Bear in Wisconsin or Pennsylvania. And the reason it's limited to that degree of intensity and universality in those two states is because only in those two states were the people on radio ballsy enough and defiant enough to break the rules of their restricted playlist, their authorized list of songs to play on the air, and actually played his song, Fred Bear, because the word of mouth came up from the hunting camps and from the, the bow hunting community about this great man and how this song embodied our love of his direction and his influence and, and his memory. And that song, if you listen to it, on a, I, I played it on an experimental Paul Reed Smith guitar. The song was created and recorded, mixed and produced in one hour just for Fred's widow. And once Henrietta, his widow, heard the song, um, she needed a couple dozen copies for their close family friends. A radio station in Detroit, thank God, Doug Padell, knew the song, expressed pure emotion and quality. He played it, and no song has ever got more requests since that day. And that's my most proud moment, but it hasn't made me a nickel. But it's why God sent me to this planet to create that song. You mentioned bow hunting. Is there a correlation 
to you between playing the guitar and hunting? Absolutely. The, the first musical attempt by mankind certainly was in a cave, um, and the twang of the bow was certainly the first guitar lick. And the thump of, the, of, a, of a stretched skin uh, celebrating uh, the successful hunt uh, was certainly the first drumbeat. Um, and there's a primality to the creators of our music, uh, the Howlin' Wolves and the Bo Diddleys and, and those black artists who were not even a, 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 a generation removed from their hunting lives in Africa and the ultimate independence and autonomy of that tribal lifestyle to the horror of enslavement by their own people. So that was the emotion that sprang forth from, I believe, even Bo Diddley and Chuck Berry and their uppity spiritedness and their defiance of all status quo music that touched the soul of every human being because we all have that rugged individualism in our heart and that primal scream of our recent ancestors and that's where this music came from. I'm absolutely convinced of it. And I still live that that same Aboriginal lifestyle every year and I have for 60 years and that's why my music, that's why the girls like my music. It's so genuine it's so sensual listen to the intro of love grenade listen to the intro of still raising hell or girl scout cookies listen to uh raw dogs and war hogs and crave man listen to snakeskin cowboys listen to stranglehold cat scratch fever dear god that's that's as primal as primal can be on a guitar Speaking of girls and primal... Yes, indeed. I was speaking of that, wasn't I? Yes, you were. Uh, <laughs> how, how come you stopped wearing the, the, the loincloth? Well, Mrs. Nugent, uh, who happens to be my campaign manager, um, and I'd like to think that my overall, shall we say, quality of life manager, she, uh, while I was sleeping many years ago, Mrs. Nugent actually uh, implanted a, an electronic dog training collar on my scrotum. <laughs> And if I uh, take this primal scream sensuality too far, I get sapped. Okay. <laughs> no, no. There, you know, you can still sing Wang Dang Sweet Poon Dang at 60, but you cannot wear a loincloth. <laughs> so let's make sure we have those written down, shall we? Now, you became a superstar in the 70s. Was it as wild as people would imagine? You know, the stardom is, it, it couldn't be more inconsequential to me. It just doesn't even enter my considerations. I'm a, I'm a husband and a father. I'm a musician. I'm the guitar player for Greg and Mick. I'm the guitar player and the entertainer on stage at night. I'm a neighbor. I'm a conservationist. I'm a uh, participant in the most glorious experiment self-government in the history of the world. Superstardom does not have any sway in those meaningful endeavors. But you know what I'm saying. Back in the day. It just it just didn't matter. Did I have fun going to Starbucks this morning and having numerous people offer to buy me a mocha? Yes. <laughs> and did they do so because of Wang Dang Sweet Poon Tang? For the most part, yes. But the guy who wouldn't let me buy dinner in Manhattan yesterday told me that he did so. He bought my dinner because I stand up for self-defense. I stand up for constitutional rights. The cab driver who yelled out, Uncle Ted, keep fighting the good fight, going down Fifth Avenue yesterday. I suppose you could connect that to superstardom or celebrity. But their references 
are more often those of political activism than the musical celebrity. You understand? Yeah. And I, I don't like the term rock star or celebrity, and certainly not stardom. You know, I'm a bow hunter. <laughs> the deer doesn't care how many albums I've sold. You know what I mean? I've still got to be tuned in to the good mother earth to get that perfect protein for my family. And that takes individual attentiveness to being the best that I can be. And though the trappings of this wonderful musical career of mine can be absolutely wonderful, um, and I've never understood the the allusion to pressure or stress, probably because I was smart enough to take the hunting season off forever, which is the ultimate stress relief, but that poor individuals like Kurt Cobain and Jimi Hendrix and, and John Belushi and, and Bon Scott succumbed to the presumption of pressure caused by stardom or, or celebrity is a real tragedy, mostly in the fact that they weren't surrounded by people who cared enough to clearly articulate that you need to discard the assumption of celebrity and just be a good guy. Just make great music. Just be conscientious how you conduct yourself. So superstardom, it, it just really doesn't enter into my American dream or my quality of life. It's uh, a kind of an add-on that I... I I discard out of hand. What's a better feeling for you? Playing the ultimate power chord on stage and feeling that feedback ripple through your body or bagging a, a buck out in the wild? They're both so sensual. They're both so spiritual. The big guitar chord of the ultimate feedback lick is a direct result of my genuine attentiveness to what Mick and Greg are doing and to the song and how it can... What it, how and what it conveys to the audience. So that is both physical and spiritual, a collision, uh, a juxtaposition of the ultimate physical sensation, because I can literally feel <laughs> my, my Birdland's feedback notes in my, my sure. joints, in, in my muscles, and in my soul. And there is a spirituality to the encounter with a beast that is going to be a gift if you perform to the best of your ability and you kill him cleanly, it's actually a gift to sustain your family. So they're both mesmerizing. They're both adrenaline charging. But in their own way, the encounter with the beast is so silent and, and solo, whereas the musical experience is always gregarious and very loud and very intense and very physical. But the spirituality of those moments, that's why uh, I mentioned a moment ago what we attained during Wang Dang, Sweet Poon Dang, as a driving musical force every night, regardless of the lyrics of the title. It is a musical mountaintop adventure that is both physical and spiritual. So the two are very much alike to me, but the outward signs are very different. When you die, would you like to get killed and eaten by a bear like in the movie Legends of the Fall, or do you just want to have like a heart attack like everybody else? <laughs> you know, <laughs> they both sound good to me. <laughs> um, but it's such a long way off that uh, I've always thought that I would like to be on the wall of the Alamo. we got another Alamo coming. 
And I would like to be on the wall of the Alamo with just a giant sea of dead bad guys in front of me <laughs> as they finally overwhelmed me. But I left my mark and I cleared the way for independence and freedom like Davy Crockett. Okay, we have some questions from some readers. Ted, I'm having a dry spell and can't seem to get any sweet poontang. I know you are the master player, so any advice would be greatly appreciated. Well, my my first alert in this modern day and age would be personal hygiene. <laughs> <laughs> I see a lot of a lot of guys out there <laughs> that don't carry themselves with confidence and with uh, a, 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 a projected conscientiousness. I see a lot of people with bad posture. I see a lot of guys that just don't look clean, don't look, you know, well-groomed, don't carry themselves with pride. The pandemic of obesity is certainly a manifestation of that horrible condition. So I would say uh, women are always interested in a man of authority, decency, goodwill, friendliness, but none of that will be determined until you are clean, well-groomed, and you carry yourself with good posture and always be as polite as possible. But I don't find that just as a, as a wang-dang consideration, but just as a consideration for being you know, friendly and uh, courteous to your fellow man, both male and female. This next question comes from uh, the Dude 5. Ted, you are the man. Serious. Nobody comes close. My question is this. Have you ever played a nude fest? My wife and I are practicing nudists. We saw Forner and Molly Hatchett played a nudist fest some years back, and it was a very emotional experience. Would you consider playing one? Or already, or have you already? Thank you. You know, my mind, I'm starting to get a headache right now, Joe. <laughs> so does that mean that Molly Hatchett was nude? Because that would be very, very ugly. Uh, I don't know. I Dear don't. God in heaven, I want to rid my mind of that thought as fast as I possibly can. Um, you know, I love nudity, um, <laughs> as long as everybody's skinny. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> my, my, my life um, certainly... Uh, well, I don't even know how to articulate this without Mrs. Nugent sapping me with that training collar. <laughs> but I've done my share of private invitation nude tests throughout my life. And uh, because uh, Mrs. Nugent is the most beautiful, skinny, svelte, sexual beast to ever walk planet Earth, she and I celebrate many nude festivals, shall we say. Uh, but I would not play a public nude uh, event because I would be afraid that Blubber would show up and, and completely neuter my otherwise very very um, robust guitar playing style. Um, the, the same person asks uh, an, another question. Ted, as I mentioned before, I'm a practicing nudist, which means I'm pretty much a pacifist. But I'm curious to know, have you ever killed an animal with your bare hands? I have killed an animal with my bare hands. I was uh, guiding a person one time, and uh, they had shot a wild boar, and when they retracted, we thought it was a dead animal. When I got upon it, it lurched forward, and I didn't have anything handy, and I literally pummeled it back to the ground and, and finished off with a rock. Oh, my. Very intense. I think you can hear that snarling uh, guitar uh, reenactment in the song Raw Dogs and War Hogs on the Crave Man record. Oh, my word. 
Well, I don't know what that has to do with the guy being a practicing nudist, but uh, well, they get a pacifist. I guarantee. Uh, here, here, this this needs to be uh, uh, shared, Joe. People will pretend to be a pacifist and claim that they're not responsible for any pain or suffering because all they eat is tofu. You with me? Yeah. When in fact, the very production and therefore complicity in the production of tofu is responsible for more death of living creatures than any activity available to mankind. And if anybody's confused by that statement, they would have to just check out the agri-practices by which soybeans are grown. And of course, we all know that those giant tractors have discs and plows that crush, mutilate, dismember, and kill every ground squirrel, every rabbit, every shrew, every vole, every snake, every bird, every turtle, every animal in that field will be annihilated before those beans can be planted. And everybody who buys the salad with that bean product in it has the blood of those animals on their hand. And there's nothing wrong with that because we do need salads and we do need tofu and we do need beans for gazillions of uses. But to pretend that you're not complicit, I guess you would have to take mind-altering chemicals to protect that that denial. Uh, here's another question. Ted, do you have any hearing left? Is tinnitus an issue? What do you and your band use for hearing protection on stage? Well, this is a, good, a very important issue. Uh, my left ear is, is terribly damaged because I've always worn an earplug in my right ear since the 60s, since the mid-60s, because the bird land through all those fender amps was so loud and so piercing because of the brittleness of the uh, Fender Twin Reverb's high end. So I got smart and I wore an earplug in my right ear. But my hearing damage is mostly attributable to the firearms enjoyment of my life. I have probably touched off more rounds than uh, uh, the 3rd Battalion in World War II storming Normandy. Uh, and I didn't get smart to wear hearing protection till the mid-70s. Um, and so I did a lot of damage to my hearing prior to that. Uh, but today it's important to note that not only should musicians and shooters protect their hearing with every decibel uh, endeavor that goes beyond uh, safety considerations, but that my stage volume today, Joe, is a probably a tenth of what it used to be. I, I merely turn up my, my, uh, my, my array of PD amplifiers so that the sound is perfect, crisp and authoritative, but it's at the threshold of feedback for the birdland, which happens to be quite quiet. And then we let the PA uh, project the maximum volume dynamic needed for the given facility. This is actually one of my own questions, but what's changed the most about your act over the years? I would like to think that very little change has occurred, but rather the, the honing of its... Um, specific efficiency and that is that the the rhythm and blues and the 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 james brown and bo diddley and chuck berry influences have remained pure but that we focused we focused and got smarter on how to best project and implement those tightness factors those those rhythm cohesive considerations of our black heroes plus i've gotten funnier on stage you know uh, there's so many funny things going on in this world and so many stupid things going on in this world 
that someone can certainly have fun with them. I, I, I've not only been influenced by the great music masters of my life, but also by the great humorists from Richard Pryor and Sam Kinison and and, uh, and, and, and those those incredible comedians. So I I have actually weaved in some of that Sam Kinison, Richard Pryor, Lenny Bruce humor into my acts, which uh, based on the record-breaking smiles per capita at my concerts has been uh, enjoyed by everybody. I have to ask, you know, you're known for doing such intense music, you know, but during your tenure in Damn Yankees, you know, you did some uh, ballads, some power ballads. You couldn't have really been happy doing that, right? I mean, you're you're the nuge. Oh, I was overjoyed. I, I don't, see, I'm spoiled. And I've always been my own boss since I was a teenager. And though I'm always a team player, and I give deep, deep, heartfelt consideration to the collaborative offerings of my uh, musical compatriots, I decided to do the damn Yankees. I jammed with Tommy Shaw and Jack Blades and Michael Cardelloni and went, boy, this is musically stimulating. This is extremely gratifying on a musical level. And remember, I, I played all the Motown songs. I played My Girl. I still play My Girl. I play Losing You by The Temptations. I play uh, James Brown and, 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 and just Wilson Pickett. And, um, I played uh, I Put a Spell on You by Screaming Jay Hawkins, which though it, it peaks at an intensity, so does High Enough by The Damn Yankees. So uh, I watched Zach Wilde express his confusion and, and heartbreak that Ted Nugent would dare allow the Motor City Madman and the Master of Stranglehold perform in what he called the wussy band of the damn Yankees. And I think, I think Zach's um, constant pursuit of inebriation is more responsible for that statement than any real musical considerations. I loved every minute of the damn Yankees music. You watch the YouTube where I unleash that Paul Reed Smith during uh, Come Again and during High Enough and during Don't Tread on Me and during those various damn Yankee songs and even the guitar solo sections that I was uh, given uh, in Damn Yankees on the PRS. That PRS, Damn Yankees Adventure, provided me unlimited expansion of my guitar vision, of my guitar capabilities, of my guitar palette, my guitar um, uh, uh, smorgasbord, my guitar tapestry. That, that was nothing but a positive, positive uh, experience for me. And I can't wait for the day that the four of us can get back together again, because I loved every minute of it. Two last questions. Sure. How many animal heads have you collected over the years? Oh, my goodness. Animal heads are fascinating in that they are the ultimate reverential salute to this magnificent beast that is a gift to feed my family. And some of these animals are just so stunning, much like the hieroglyphics, if that's the proper term, of the animal artwork on caveman walls of uh, legend and of, of, and of yore. The animal head on the wall is one of deep respect to the beauty and the sacrifice of that animal to provide my family sustenance. I don't mount very many animals by taxidermists, even though the artwork is nothing short of spectacular. But I've certainly 
mounted hundreds and hundreds of heads over the years of the, not just the giant record-type stags of gargantuan antler beauty, but also the young female of the species that represented a time with a terminally ill child or a legless marine who accompanied me on a hunt or the first deer I ever shot with my bow and arrow uh, on that beautiful October 7th day in 1969. Uh, that doe is still mounted on my wall, even though it, it's not the kind of animal you would think you would mount. Because as I made myself healthier by the pursuit and understanding of that beast, and then made my body healthier by the, uh, the channeling of that pure protein, uh, when I gaze upon that head on my cabin wall, it is uh, a reminder that these animals are indeed a renewable, sustainable gift that provide me life. And uh, most of the animals that I do have mounted, I now autograph and uh, remark and auction off for charities. On a different note, if you could physically remove one band from this planet, what would it be? (laughs) (laughs) I'm such a loving guy, Joe. (laughs) <laughs> I would just let them all keep going, you know what I mean? Oh, there must be somebody. But there is, a, there is a thorn in my foot that it's, I, 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 it, 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 it's embarrassing and it's repugnant. And that is that in the same so-called Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, that the gods of thunder reside, Bo Diddley, Chuck Berry, James Brown, Wilson Pickett, Sam and Dave, Aerosmith, ZZ Top, Van Halen, Little Richard, Jerry Lee Lewis, the Masters, that some brain-dead buffoon would dare allow Patti Smith (laughs) into that hall is sacrilege. (laughs) And I'd rather that she just stayed in a LSD recovery island and spouted her mindless soulless so-called poetry because for her to be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame you might as well just piss on the grave James Brown and I'm offended by that okay well uh, there you go same thing goes for Grandmaster Flash how dare how dare they be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame okay well uh, there you have it there you have it Hey, Ted, thank you very much for spending some time with me. My uh, pleasure, Joe. God bless you guys, man. And God bless all those uh, musicians out there who put their heart and soul into expressing themselves uh, accurately and honestly and uninhibitedly, dare I say, irreverently and defiantly on their instruments. All that stuff is important, and I salute them all for uh, uh, being the best they can be. It's been a pleasure. This is Joe Basso for Music Radar, the place for music makers, and I've been speaking with Ted Nugent. Again, thank you very much, man. Godspeed. God bless America, man. Take take care, man. Thanks, Joe. Bye-bye.